1: To Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow up episode for episode number 519, Damien Eccles Alibi, Part 2. In this week's episode, we look deeper into Damien Eccles Alibi and we look for statements that conflicted with the statements that we heard the week before, which put Damien with his family at the Sanders house at 7 p.m. on May 5th, 1993. As you all heard, as I went through all the different statements, we did find a couple of conflicts, but those conflicts also presented a problem for the prosecution in the fact that they still alibi Damien into a different place at that same time. So I know we got a lot of questions, Mike, but before we start on that, I did want to make one shout out here to all the Patreon folks. We're getting ready to order the shirts and we want to ship off the hats for those of you that uh, have all donated to the levels to get the shirts and the hats. And uh, I don't really know how Patreon works, so I'm just learning. It said that it was supposed to ask you for a shipping address, but it never said it was supposed to ask you for sizes. So if you could, if you're a Patreon supporter and you're at a level where you get a hat or a shirt or both, please go onto the Patreon site and send me a message through Patreon and give me your size and your shipping address. And in the next few weeks, we're going to get those out to you. But I think that's it for housekeeping, Mike. We can go ahead and get started.
2: All right, Bob, let's do it. This one comes from Clay. He says, Something I'm not sure about from the last episode was the constant mentioning of, quote, and this would have happened at the exact time of the murders, end quote. He says, Come on, do we really know the exact time of the murders? I know that 6.30 to 8 p.m. or so is the commonly accepted time frame, but isn't that even up for debate? Should the constant use of the words exact time of the murders really be used in an unbiased investigative podcast like this one?
1: Clay does make a good point, and my personal belief is that the murders occurred very within minutes of uh, the boys going into the woods. And so we've got a a time of disappearance right around 6.30 uh, in time for the the murders to occur, the concealment of the bodies and the egress of the offender, and being out of there by, say, 8.30 at the latest, because there were people at the pipe bridge looking for the boys, and the bikes were already gone and the muddy footprints by then. I think that it would have to happen, uh, again, at least the attack right after the boys went into the woods. my assumption has always been, and I guess I shouldn't say assumption, it's not really an assumption, I mean, my opinion based on my investigation is that it would happen around seven o'clock, would be the time of death. That being said, Clay's got a good point, because that is not a, a generally accepted timeline amongst everyone, and it, it is probably the most common accepted time frame, but there are a lot of theories out there, stuff we haven't gotten into yet, that we will get into in the, in, in the future, once we get past this initial investigation stage, which we're we're starting to take a little leaps a little faster, uh, so we'll catch up quicker here for those of you that are getting a little frustrated with how long this is taking. But this is just the way that I work. We we work very detailed. We, we'll spend hours going over just a single document sometimes if we think we're going to find an answer in there. But I did this week on a discussion page that I'm on. Ask some people, because I know in, in this particular page there's a lot of people that definitely disagree with that time of death uh, and believe it happened much later. Uh, and then let's not forget Frank Peretti. Dr. Peretti said that he believed it was from 1 to 5 a.m. And then you get Fogelman in closing saying it was from nine to ten p.m. So there's all these different, you know, elements out there of what you might believe as far as when the time of death was. But what I was asking people, if you believe that the time of death was later, do you still believe the 7 p.m. time is relevant? Meaning if they didn't die till say one in the morning, do you believe that the boys were attacked and abducted at seven? And or somewhere around there, between six thirty and seven o'clock. And the majority of people seem to agree with that, that, um, I mean, and there's theories ranging from the three boys were abducted at separate times, in different locations, there's there's all sorts of theories out there, but most of the people that I was discussing this with seem to think that even if the time of death was later, that the boys had to have been abducted at that point, which, you know, I, I think that's a place where most of us could meet in the middle and say that, yeah, even if they died later, you know, they, they went into the woods at 6.30, at 8.30 the The bikes are gone. There's muddy footprints on the bridge. There's people searching and they're nowhere to be found. So even if they weren't dead and in the creek at that time, they certainly weren't, you know, out playing. Still, I think that. I mean, that's my opinion. It seems to be the opinion of some others. So I I will agree with Clay that me saying it was the exact time of the murders. I think a better phraseology for me would have been the exact time of the attack or abduction. Um, because just because everyone doesn't agree, I do believe that's when the murder occurred, but the murders, but it's not agreed on by everyone. So um, if you you think the 7 p.m. time frame is not relevant, go ahead and write in and let us know why. But for the moment, uh, it seems to me that 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 is definitely a relevant time. Okay, and this next one's from Jonathan.
2: Jonathan says, Is it possible that one of the parents of the boys maybe owed some money to someone like maybe drug dealers and the murders might have had something to do with that? It's just a thought. He's got another point too, but let's cover this and then I'll get to the next one.
1: Okay, uh, certainly anything's possible and there is some stuff that we haven't spoken about yet on the podcast but is a little and, and we'll get into it all later but a lot of people may not be aware of the fact that John Mark Byers actually was a criminal informant for both the Memphis Police and West Memphis Police both sides of the bridge and he, he had quite a bit of um history with drugs we'll say that uh in criminal history he was a CI with the police departments that's why he was so friendly with so many of the cops, uh, on, again, on both sides of the bridge. And that can certainly lend itself to having some pissed off drug dealers at you. I personally don't see the crime scene fitting that profile in the fact that if something like that was done in retaliation, it's done to send a message. And and so the the, the work that went into the concealment doesn't fit with a, like a gang-related killing in order to send a message back to the parents. Because they would they would want them to know they would be displayed or something like that, um, so doesn't seem like that's something that's really feasible to me. But we'll leave our we'll leave that option open to come back to it when we get into theories.
2: I thought Terry Hobbs was the informant. Did you
1: did you recently learn that it was Byers was also an informant? I've known for a while. I guess i I haven't discussed it with you. I think we had had a tip early on that Hobbs was a CI, but I have found no evidence of that. But so it the, might have been some confusion there. It could be because uh, John Mark Byers for sure was. I mean, that's documented. You know, as I got deeper into the case, it's you know Leverett's book really digs into it. The Devil's Not. Uh, I recently listened to that on Audible, and yeah, it's it even it's it's, it's well known fact for people that, that know the case deeply. You know, not just watch the documentaries. Uh, that he was. There's no question. He admits it. Uh, he's on the record talking about it. Uh, that he was a CI.
2: Okay, next Jonathan says it sounds like Damien Eccles had the strongest alibi of the three, and he ended up getting the death penalty. That's crazy. Why didn't his lawyer at least try to get his phone records
1: to back up his claim? Good question, uh, and and also to the point, we haven't really gotten into anybody else's alibis yet, and so we're gonna this week we're gonna start bridging the gap from Damien to Jesse because that's how it went. You know, Jason Baldwin wasn't involved much in the investigation early, other than hap- he happened to be with Damien when they interviewed him on May 9th. There's there's nothing else from Jason Baldwin. Damien, there was a, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, there was a lot of confusion with the other Jason Baldwin. But it, it went from Damien, Jesse links Damien and Jesse together, and then Jesse also brings in the other Jason Baldwin, Damien's best friend, Jason Baldwin. So we're going to kind of go in that order uh, and talk about alibis as we move along. But as far as why his lawyers didn't try to get the phone records, we talked about this a little bit last week. I don't know. I mean it was again it would take some more work according to uh again Don Don McLane listener who's an engineer uh who did some research on the system they could have gotten that information but I think that the way things were done mostly you know remember our season 2 case Elnora Griffin her murder was also in 1993 just a couple of months after this one same issue they didn't get any local phone records but what they'll usually do is they'll they'll subpoena the phone bill because that's easy uh and then you know, if if that really only has a long distance calls on it, no local calls. I think they got to dig a little deeper to get the call to call records. Today it's easy because everybody has cell phones, and so we have a detailed list of everything. All
2: right, and Joy wants to know: Could you address the inconsistencies in Pam Hutchison's statements?
1: Yeah, I saw that, and I think she had. Um, uh, there was a little clip I think another listener had posted, uh, and it's from a document. It's it was by Ron Lax, who was one of the defense investigators created a master timeline and he had like every single entry in there, like every, every statement. So, you know, at three thirty, it will have, you know, five different people who said what was happening at three thirty. And I've been through it. I haven't dug deeply into it. We didn't even do an episode just on that, uh, that document. Cause it's so big and it's so in depth, but she pulled a snip off of there, uh, where lacks of can I see that real quick? Yeah. I see, I see you have it copied on there. Um, cause if I remember correctly, What's it say? Pam Hutchison also said that when they got to the Sanders, no one was home, but they let themselves in an unlocked door, and she left a note for Susan Sanders. And that source is cited as June 21st, Ron Lack's memo on Pam Hutchison interview. So not a transcript. What he's saying here, so Ron talked to Pam in June the 21st, a couple of weeks after Damien was arrested, and he has a note in there. That she said no one was home. She went in through an unlocked door, and then we have, of course, the the narrative that we were talking about in the last couple of weeks was that the daughter, that no one was home except the younger daughter, and they went in and talked to her. So I don't know, and that's why there's a lot of inconsistencies with a lot of the stories. Everybody's even if you look at the different the Sanders stories, you know everything's just a little bit different from Stacy to Jennifer to the McKays. Everybody's off by just a little bit because they're all trying to remember something. Really, I tried to back away from what are Damien and his family saying because they're the closest. If anybody's going to lie, it would be them. And and all their statements are inconsistent. So, But that's why we go back to things that we can independently use to corroborate timelines. You know, when we're going through like a cognitive interview which obviously I wasn't able to conduct a cognitive interview with uh any of these people but I'm I'm reading the the transcripts of the interviews that they had and you're looking for indications of deception you're looking for overselling you're looking for uh anything like that that would indicate that they're lying and I don't see that and then you have you know they, they could be wrong but it's it, it, as we say it's their truth so whatever this person is telling you they believe to be true uh, and then we look for the the independent corroboration of time markers that we can use and that was we were lucky that they remembered that you know Beverly Hills 90210 came on while they were there i was waiting for it to start stacy i didn't leave and go across the street and talk to them because Beverly Hills 90210 was about to start you know mckay meredith mckay i remember Beverly Hills 90210 was going to start so we've got that anchor that we can independently corroborate to uh to lock down because if you take all those There are certain people that that are just going to blow this up. I hope I should say this. I hope that the same people that are holding such a scrutinous standard, if that's a word, and I'm not sure that it is, don't think it is, (laughs) to Damien and his parents' statements about this and the Sanders and everybody else that are like little, like found a memo from a, a report by a defense investigator, not even a transcript. From months later. And I'm not dismissing it. It's important to look at. And it does throw another inconsistency in there. But I hope that they'll hold that same level of scrutiny up to other witness statements that we're going to get into as we move along. Because because what I what I hear oftentimes is the same people that are like, yeah, the Hollingsworth statement is completely legit. Why are you trying to discredit that? And then and then this one that we have the 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 start of Beverly Hills 90210. We have the uh the casino, the 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 jackpot receipt, we have the testimony of Gail Poindexter or Gail Sharp that says that she saw the Sanders there the day that she won the jackpot, the disability check. We have all of these markers that put everything together. And one thing that is important to point out, that I think that it's very obvious that the Sanders did go to the casino with the DeWitts on that night. There's plenty of corroborating factors to that, uh, between the, the, the tax receipt, Gail Sharp's testimony, we didn't get too much on the main episode, but in the follow-up, we talked about the, the restaurant reservations for four at the casino. And so if, if all of this is wrong, it's like, what, what a coincidence that they remember it all happening on the day they went to the casino. But they'll look at, you know, all that doesn't matter because Damien didn't get the time right and Pam didn't get the time right. And people that are new to the case, new to the show, don't realize you know, they they may think that I'm making excuses for the Eccles, but for those of you that've been around for 250 episodes, know that, that in our investigations we've always said, and and any good investigator will tell you that memories and eyewitnesses are the worst evidence ever. It's just that they're not consistent. Memories are a dynamic thing, and they're not all stored in the same place in your brain. You know, you have different parts of memory, the the emotions, the colors you see. Uh, the feelings you felt, the sensory memories, they're all stored in different parts of your brain. And in order to form a cohesive actual memory, you you have to fire all of those different parts of your brain together to form the memory. And if anything's missing or anything gets mixed up, your brain will actually fill in the gaps without you doing. That's why we talk about a lot of people when we're analyzing them for indications of deception. And they could be not giving us any indications of deception whatsoever but at the same time, they're wrong. Well, sometimes that means they're lying. Sometimes it means they're just wrong. That is their truth. And in this case, it I I don't see any indications of deception on the non family members at all. And we have, you know, and they could be wrong, but we have those independent corroborating factors of the TV show, the disability check, and the jackpot and the casino receipts.
0: A woo-hoo-er, a hand clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18+. All right,
2: next we've got this from Robin, and you kind of touched on it in the last question. She says, does anyone else find it odd that Damien's entire family would go in and spend 30 minutes at the Sanders home when only the daughter was there? And also, do we know why they even went there in the first place?
1: I don't find it odd, but that's just something that's going to be a matter of anybody's personal opinion. But remember, these were close family friends. They lived together uh, at one point. I I, I can't remember exactly. There was two different times, I think, when they lived together. When when the Hutchinsons had moved away and come back, and then maybe when the Sanders moved away and came back. These are close Family, friends. And so for them to come in and say, oh, see, just the daughter is there, I don't think it would be out of the ordinary at all for them to come in and chit chat with the daughter. I will say that I found it odd, and I think it was Pam's statement. One of the early statements said that they were, or indicated at least that they were, you know, waiting for the parents to come home. Like they waited around, even though they had gone to the casino, which is over an hour away, and they knew they weren't going to be back anytime soon. But, you know, I it's another one that I find very interesting and odd, for sure. But, again, we have those independent corroborating factors. But, no, I don't think it's, you know, I, I'm thinking of, I can think of five different families that my wife and I and families are close to that if we went to their house and it was just one of the kids' home that we would sit and chat with them for a little while. So I don't find that odd at all. And why they were going over there to begin with, just they were going to hang out with their friends. I think this was was all the story was. Next, we've got this from Lori.
2: What time period were the police interested in at this point? I know it was said in an earlier episode when the autopsy results came back with an approximate time of death quite a bit later, and their thought was that the murder occurred after midnight, correct? Maybe that's why these alibis we're looking at didn't mean much
1: to them. Well, for starters, the police never got a time of death. Peretti never, ever documented anywhere when he believed the time of death to be. The, the police were working completely blind within days of arresting uh, Damien and Jason and Jesse. They, they were, Gitchell's still writing letters pissed because he doesn't even have the autopsy reports back. He even said, we're working blindfolded here because we don't know what's happening. So there, there's a little bit of a red flag at that point. They've developed an entire case against suspects when admittedly by the chief inspector, the lead investigator, that they have no idea what actually happened so we did not have a time of death so the police didn't even know what they were looking for at that point they they didn't know what time frame was relevant so and i, and I don't give them any excuses for this it was bullshit because the only time that they knew was relevant was 6:30 according to their their notes their interviews the boys were seen alive at 6:30 entering robin hood woods uh and they know they were the search parties were forming the police were called all within a couple of hours of there so they know that that time is going to be relevant they don't have a medical examiner you know peretti didn't even give a time of death in the first trial he was pushed to do so by the by the defense in the second trial that's the first he's ever said when the time of death was as far as i know so they knew the police knew that the relevant time period that a relevant time period was 6:30 to 7:30 because they know when the boys went in the woods and disappeared and they know when they weren't there uh, and the bikes weren't there. The bikes are the biggest clue, because even if they were abducted, the bodies and the bikes being in two different locations, and we'll get into, I don't know, like, I think you got too much there to really get into it today, why I really think that uh, the crime scene was the same as the Discovery site, and why I think Time of Death was all all packaged in one. A lot of it has to do with the bikes. You know, If, if you've got them somewhere else, then why bring the bikes back and put them in a different place? One possible scenario is, I guess, you abduct the kids, throw the bikes in the bayou, and leave with the kids, but then bring the kids back to the same place where everybody's searching. I don't know. But One thing that comes to mind for me is that
2: it could have been a complete amateur who did this, mm-hmm. and they were sort of trying to come up with a plan as they went along and maybe try to come up with something different, or they were second-guessing their original plan or something like that, which led them back to the crime scene for
1: whatever reason. It could be, yeah. There's a there's a whole lot of scenarios out there to cover. But, but again, getting back to, I guess, I, I think that was the nature of that question was is maybe the reason the police ignored the alibi because they thought the time of death was later? That's just inaccurate. That's not that's not correct because they they didn't know when the time of death was, and they did know that that six thirty to seven thirty, or at least they believed right or wrong that that was a relevant time period. So let's back up. So they interview Damien. He says he mentions the Sanders house, but it's earlier, and then he brings it back later, but it's still not in that time frame. And then he says he was on the phone all night, and then. After that, he talks to his mom, and she gives him a story. The police don't believe them, which is they shouldn't. You don't, you don't, you don't take a suspect word for it. You try to corroborate it. So then they go to outside the family, they go to the Sanders, and they interview them, and they put it in. They they timestamp it, and then they go to Officer McKay's family across the street, and they confirm also that it was it was during that seven o'clock time frame. They interview Ken Watkins. And he says, no, he wasn't at the Sanders' house at 7 o'clock. He's lying. He he was with me even further away from the crime scene. And so they're just stacking up. But keep in mind that when these interviews happen, they had already been arrested. They had already been indicted. And the prosecution was building their case for trial. You know, So had the information from the Sanders and all that come out maybe before arrest, like maybe, I don't know, if the police had actually tried to confirm the alibis before they decided to arrest these kids. Maybe it would have a different result. But by that point in the game, Fogelman was just locked on and he was, he was going to prosecute these guys. And so when that information came up, he just put it on the back burner and I think more so worked on trying to come up with ways to defend against the defense raising these arguments with the alibi. And that's why I think that Fogelman um, really pushed the 9 to 10 p.m. time frame for the time of death. Because they had witnesses that, you know, and that didn't happen till, and and that's probably a question you have, but I'll just answer it now. The time of death at trial was really interesting. At Jesse Miss Kelly's trial, they weren't they couldn't mess with the time of death because the only thing they had to work with was his confession, and he had they had already pushed him from nine a.m. to to the the evening hours. They couldn't make it the middle of the night. They couldn't push it back any further because it's after dark, and it just it just changes everything. Uh, but since Miss Kelly didn't testify in uh, Damien and Jason's trial, they had a little more flexibility, they had tons of flexibility with the time of death there. And I think that Fogelman intended to push a 9 to 10 p.m. time of death because he knew those interviews weren't the police with the Sanders and McKays and all them. That was Fogelman. The prosecutor was the one interviewing them. And so he knew what the defense was going to put on for an alibi, and so I think his strat- trial strategy was to push the time of death back. Who says he can't, right? I mean, they're, they're not dealing with uh, Ms. Kelly's confession. He can put it wherever he wants. I think that it was, uh, I think it hurt him when Peretti said it was from 1 to 5 a.m., and somebody had asked me on one of the discussion groups if, uh, you know, they said you're accusing Frank Peretti of lying. I'm not saying he's lying. I'm just saying I think he's wrong. Then maybe he's right. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but my opinion of Peretti's time of death of 1 to 5 a.m. was based solely on lividity evidence, which is another episode in and of itself. We've covered it in depth with doctors and experts a few seasons ago. But in the, and this is no mistake to, or, or nothing even wrong with Peretti's line of thinking here. Back in the early 90s, we learned even in the late 90s, lividity was thought of, you know, lividity fixes, which is the blood settling in the body. Between you know eight to twelve hours, some books would say six to twelve hours somewhere in there lividity fixes, and then there's different levels of lividity when it will blanch, you know where it's you know like if I push your arm there, it turns white and then turns red again, and so there were there were set black and white time frames in the nineties. That was what was the general consensus based on that, the boys had fixed lividity, but they were still blanching at three p m He's counting back hours that's got to be in this range, you know, between 1 and 5 a.m. He wasn't wrong with the science that they knew then. What we learned from Dr. Lavardi back in uh, Season 1 is that scientists have recently learned and medical professionals have learned that lividity is far more fluid than they believed back then, meaning it is greatly affected. The old textbooks will say rigor mortis is affected by temperature, but liver mortis or lividity is not newer research shows that's false. Lividity can be greatly affected by temperature, age of the victim. Moisture, uh, maybe. Moisture, water. If the, you know, if they say they're in water and they're they're turning like this, you guys can see it on the video. Then that would that would slow down the settling a little bit if it, if you keep it in a constant state of motion. So there's a lot of things that could affect the lividity. Which then what it it doesn't tell us well the the time of death was this time, what it tells you is the range of time of death just got a whole lot broader you know it it could be we don't really know it just leaves us with a big fat question mark, and then you know and then you use environmental factors or or known factors of the case, like when were they last seen alive and things like that to to try to help narrow it down, so getting all the way back to where I think this started <laughs> this conversation started is I think they had to do what they were asking about the police. And why they didn't consider the alibis important, well, the police didn't actually try to corroborate the alibis at all. It wasn't until Fogelman was preparing for trial when there was an attempt to corroborate the alibis. And when they didn't work, they just said, well, okay. Even if, even if it's wrong, Fogelman knew that the defense could present a case to the jury that Damien Echols was at the Sanders house at 7 p.m. Right or wrong, believe it or not, he they, he had to know that they could make that. And so he puts the time of death at 9 to 10 p.m., which, again, he could do because there is no time of death. Peretti never, ever documented a time of death. So do it however he wants to. Summer wants to know, does Jason have another
2: uncle named Earl? Because this could help better explain the Kenneth Watkins statement.
1: Not that I know of. I think he just got the name wrong.
2: Okay, now let's talk about Damien's alibi, where he says that he was on the phone talking to the girls at the time the murders took place. How is this possible when it's speculated that the time of the murders happened as late as one a.m.?
1: Well, I think more relevant is the fact that the generally accepted time of the murders happening was at seven p.m. Neither of those are covered by the girls' statements or the girls' the conversations with the girls. And I made this point sort of last week about why Damien thinks the girls' phone calls are his alibi, uh, and as and I don't remember if in the follow up we got into the fact that Fogelman shifted the time of death in closing arguments, but. This is what it comes down to. Damien, because somebody else had, had sent me a, a YouTube link and saying, like, here's Damien being interviewed after he was released, and he's still claiming that he was talking to these three girls during the time of the murders, and maybe that's what that, that question comes from. And they're like, why does he still say that's his alibi? You're so sure it's the Sanders, and, and he doesn't even believe that. He thinks that it was, he was on the phone, Are he saying that. But the fact of the matter is, these are, like it or not, and I know there's a lot that don't like it, these are absolute indications of somebody being truthful and someone who has no idea what actually happened at the crime scene. So let's say, at least for those of you that are people that that tend to agree with the convictions and think they got the right guys, consider this for a minute. If and I'm not saying you have to agree that this is what happened, but just consider if Damian Eccles is innocent and he did not commit these murders. How would he know what time the crimes were committed? How would he know what time they died? Well, all he could do is get that from like his defense lawyers, through police files, through the autopsy reports, which none of those listed a time of death, or at the trial. And so at the trial, if, again, hypothetically, if we're talking about an innocent person, Damien heard Dr. Peretti, say the time of death was between 1 and 5 a.m., but that wasn't hard and fast you know he was he said repeatedly that he didn't know he could not pinpoint a time of death the defense pushed it and and he said i you know if i had to to make a he didn't say the word guess but if i had to make a determination i would say between 1 and 5 a.m. possibly as late as 7 a.m. based on lividity that was pretty wishy-washy but then in closing arguments you know summarizing the whole case after all of the witness statements all of the testimony that's when Fogelman gets stands up before the jury and says that, that these murders occur between nine and ten p.m. Well, what does Damian Eccles remember doing between nine and ten PM? He was at home on the phone. And so for years, still to this day, he says he was on the phone with his girls when I talked to him, when I interviewed with him, when when we're done with the investigation side, we'll we'll do the we'll play the interviews uh that I've done with Damien and Jason, uh just as kind of to summarize everything. And, and he told me he's like, "I don't even remember he's like yeah, i I don't remember what I was doing. I don't think I particularly remembered then what my you know what I was doing on that day, and they pushed me and I kept trying to give them you know what you know what I thought, but he he, he you'll you'll hear him in the interview say, to be honest with you, I really don't know what was going on that day. I remember like what we landed on for what seemed like the alibi, but for him, he thought it was." Being on the phone with these two girls, because Fogelman said that the crime happened between nine and ten p.m. No one refuted that at trial, and so he thinks that's when the murders occurred, and therefore that's his alibi. A, a good indicator of guilt would have been if he said, at the time the crimes occurred, I was at the Sanders house at exactly seven p.m. That would be a big red flag because where did that seven p.m. time frame come from? If the only way he learned about the crime was at trial and then he came out and said, well, I was at the Sanders at 7 p.m., that's my alibi, that would be a red flag because he shouldn't know that that's when the crimes occurred if he's innocent.
2: Okay, some pretty good questions here. Let's go ahead and take a quick break here from our sponsor and then we'll get back to the show.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com with linkedin jobs we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
2: This one comes from Mark. He says, I hate to criticize, but I want to ask Bob a question. You say that polygraphs aren't dependable in previous episodes, especially Durham's. But in five nineteen, you seem to imply the polygraphs of witnesses who contradict Damien's alibi to show that the witnesses' statements aren't quite credible. Personally, guilty or innocent, I'd never submit to that quote junk science.
1: Mark, I I think you're you're misinterpreting the reason that I was doing that. I'm not trying to as a matter of fact, I don't think the polygraphs helped Damien at all. You know, when when you went through Ken Watkins' two polygraphs, it ended up looking like if 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 the polygraphs were accurate that damien really did tell him that he knows who killed the boys and he was there that doesn't look good for damien not at all the reason i I do and i will maintain i don't agree i don't think any polygraph ever is worth anything if you have a really really good like an eric holden gosh Er holden or holder i always mix those two up i think it's holden
2: i think holder was the politician
1: okay but yeah, if you've got a guy like him that is analyzing it, it's probably gonna be more accurate. But still, it's just it's just measuring your body's responses and not everybody's body's responses are the same and and they're so fallible and they're they're I, I just I don't agree with any of them. And then when you got a Durham who's new at doing it on a new machine and either is just wrong or lying about results in order to push people to change their testimonies, I don't put any value in them. But that is just my opinion. And so when people are polygraphed, I, I will still report because it's in evidence. You know, It's it's part of their investigation, so I'm going to put that out there. You know, if, if I had some sort of agenda, I wouldn't talk about the polygraphs with Ken Watkins because at the end of it, it looks bad on Damien, the polygraph does. But it's in evidence, so we put it out there, and, and you can make your own opinion about it. Just because I don't think that they're relevant doesn't mean that they're not relevant. That's just my opinion.
2: This one's from Raven. Has anyone put any thought into the position the bodies were found? I mean, Stevie in particular is posed as if he was sitting in a chair or maybe tied up sitting on the ground with his back against a tree or some other surface but legs out in front of him. The body goes into rigor in the position in which it was last before it died. So it seems weird to me that he's in this particular position with his calves not more folded towards the back of his thighs as you would expect if he was flat on his back at the bottom of the creek. And his arms are in a position that suggests this too. Thoughts?
1: First of all, rigor doesn't occur in the position you were last in when you died. It's the position that you're in when rigor sets in. So say you died laying flat on your back and then, you know, you got, you're murdered and stuffed into a trash bag. So you're bundled up. Then when rigor sets in, you know, around, you know, 18, 24 hours or fully sets, then you would be frozen in that position. But then rigor eventually, you know, it, it, it breaks down and then you you're, you become movable again after that and i've had the unfortunate experience of of viewing a lot of the crime scene photos and i don't i don't find stevie branches when they're 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 putting up i don't find any of them uh strange but since we're talking about stevie's in particular position of his body he had much longer bindings than say michael moore did michael moore's bindings i think was one shoelace cut in half where stevie had two full length bindings or two full length shoelaces as his bindings and so that allowed his knees to be, you know, his feet to be further away from his hands. Uh, and they were spread out a little bit more. But all of the, all three boys were, you could see the, you know, the, the bindings are pretty tight. You know, when the body's trying to straighten out, they just went as far as the shoelaces would let them go. And And you'll see that they're all, you know, their hands are all kind of either at their side or the longer bindings are, their hands are a little bit in front of them. Uh, because that's just the straightest line to go from their wrist to their ankles. So no, I I don't find their position different. I've heard theories that, that they were sitting somewhere, uh, and, and, there's, and there's some issues with lividity, but again, you got to remember they're in a moving body of water. There's been a lot of discussion, too, about their position in the water, if they were face down or on their side. I just don't know, and admittedly, I haven't researched this thoroughly. It was just a recent conversation, but let's start with Michael Moore to begin with. Mike Allen's foot got caught under him. He thought that it was a log, and as he lifted his foot up, up floats Michael Moore, okay? And then he and then he leaves him there, and then Ridge later comes in and, and picks him up and pulls him out. Well, it, he's come up. We, 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 I don't know how we can say he was at a particular position. Had they, they dammed up and drained the water, left them where they were at, you'd have a better idea. But since they were all just lifted out of the water, before you could see into the water and know where they were at, I just don't think we can get an accurate assessment of exactly how they were positioned. Uh, And again, it's a flowing body of water. Uh, Also, let's not forget that if you're in the camp that you believe there was at least some animal predation. Mike, we saw what those turtles will do to chickens and pigs. Yeah. And they will latch onto them and just jerk them and spin them and twist them and yank them around, which would then cause more shifting under the water. So. Yeah, I, I just—I I guess the, the short answer to that is I don't find anything particularly odd about Stevie's positioning. I think it's exactly what I would expect with him being bound the way that he was.
2: Yeah, because I do remember seeing that, that image is stained in my, my memory of him kind of coming out like he was sitting in a chair. Yeah,
1: and you and you do note that rigor is fully set there because you'll see when he gets laid on the bank and, and the, the key is when he's laid on his side. His knees are still apart, you know, and, and yeah, that, right. and that's how, you know, rigor is fully set, because if it wasn't, then gravity would bring the leg down. mean, um, there's a lot of questions people have had about, you know, why wasn't Michael Moore's rigor set? I need to get into more of the photos and look, but the few that I was just examining the other day, again, he was in a different position because of the shorter bindings. And he was also laid on the bank on his back rather than his side, like Stevie Branch was, where it was more noticeable yeah but what i did notice in the photos this was just two nights ago when i was having a discussion on facebook uh with a couple people and i was looking at it you can see in one of the picture michael moore's foot is not touching the ground and so his knees so if you might his knee is bent and his foot is off the ground so like this were if rigor wasn't set the foot would fall uh because of you know it would go down to the ground gravity would bring it down so i think that some of that has to do with uh j- just the positioning of the body based on the shorter bindings that were they were tying up Michael Moore uh, but i need to look into it a little further and on that topic i need to know i've got a project for any of you out there listening that may be a botanist or or an expert in plant identification especially in uh southern, the southern united states in the arkansas area i've got i've got something i need you to do for me so if you are that, if you believe that you have the, the skills to identify some plant life, please shoot us an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. In the subject line, put plants so that Mike can, Mike can find them as he goes through all the emails this week. So uh, that's theories at truthandjusticepod.com. In the subject line, put plants, and uh, we've got an assignment for you if you are willing.
2: All right. Rebecca says, I have a non-episode-specific question relating to Season 5. When there are multiple defendants, how is the trial handled? Do they have three separate trials or one but introduce defendant-specific evidence?
1: In this case, and, and I don't know, this would be a good question for um, some of our lawyers that are listening, because uh, I don't know how they make the determination. I know that in this case, Jesse Miss Kelly, which we'll get into in the next few episodes, confessed to the crimes and implicated Damien and Jason. Uh, and so he his trial was severed and he was tried separately. Because of that, I believe, so that that he could face his own confession. And then Damien and Jason were tried together. So there was two trials. Jesse refused to testify at their trial, so they didn't have that evidence. But Jason's defense continually throughout, before, during the trial, kept filing motions for severance because he didn't want to be tried. His attorneys didn't want him to be tried with Damien Eccles. Because juries are supposed to look at each individual case separately, they're supposed to look at the evidence as it applies to Damien and the evidence as it applies to Jason, which is a complete crock. That's not what happens ever when you have uh, two defendants on trial at the same time. I, I would, le- and, and maybe they're out there. Somebody let me know if you come across one, but I would be shocked to find a a co defendant trial like this where one was convicted and one was acquitted. That would be that would be pretty surprising. In this case, Damien or uh, Jason's defense didn't put up a defense, hardly any, because they didn't have to. The prosecution's entire case, the entirety of their case, was against Damien. It was it was a completely circumstantial case, all pointed at Damien. They had one witness that implicated something that Jason had said. That was it, and then and then the knife that was found at the lake behind his house, which was not ever tied to the crime, you know, through forensic testing or anything. It was just a knife in a lake. Uh, that was behind his house. And so Damien's defense was just like, well, we don't really need much of a defense. There's no evidence against us. But it didn't matter. When the jury convicted, they convicted both. And and then we learned later, uh, which we'll get into in detail, uh, the foreman of the jury did know about Jesse Ms. Kelly's confession and did make sure the rest of the jury knew about Jesse Kelly's con- uh confession. One of the reasons why, if you believe they're innocent or guilty, that's that's surely up to, for debate. What is not up for debate is the fact that they did not receive a fair trial. The fact that the jurors used evidence to convict them that was not introduced as evidence as trial is a complete violation of your constitutional rights. There was not a fair trial. They should have got a new trial. So that the the, the conviction being vacated, I think, would have happened just based on that. Uh, and then we had the Alford plea and everything else after that. But, but so... Again, going back to my uh, TLDR, for my short version of the answer is, in this particular case, Jesse was tried separately, and Jason and Damien were tried together. Billy
2: says, do the shoe prints on the pipe bridge match the shoe prints at the crime scene?
1: There were never any casts or anything taken of the shoe prints on the pipe bridge. That was an observance uh, from David Jacoby, and I believe even some of the others that were with him saw them, but they were just blotchy, muddy prints going across the bridge or going across the pipe. Uh, And it was right at dark, so they left. And then when when David got back to the pipe uh, on the other side to try to pick up the prints, by that point there was a bunch of prints on the pipe because people had gone back and forth across during the search. All right, thanks everybody for writing in. We really appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Yep, thanks everybody. And make sure you tune in on Sunday where we start to dig into the link between Damien Eccles and Jesse Kelly. and justice is a production of nbi studios michael bussing is your executive producer and all music for the show was created and composed by put in a i want to thank amanda meyer of willow photo and designs for designing and creating our friday follow-up logo and a special thanks to katie ross of created for designing creating managing and maintaining our website and also a big thank you to our transcription team sarah mueller anna dindorf britta bliss and stephanie mcconnell and as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However, you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Whoa, what was that snap? I think it's just, f- am I just too hot? I gotta watch my language on here. They like the cussin' on the Patreon. Most Patreon people are big cussers, right? You guys are cussers. What was the question? <laughs> did, oh, God dang. Did, did I answer it? Uh, uh,
2: yeah, I think you did. Uh, okay. The question was while wow, we went, we were going all the way back to uh, Pam's statements. Right by
1: now, the listener forgot what the question was. Wow, that's good. So that was enthralled good. by my flowing narrative, man. Hopefully, that made sense to you. Yeah, you done? I'm done. You have a real command of the English language. I'm just saying. I mean, it was a little weirdly worded. I know, and you didn't write that, right? They wrote that. Yeah, just there.
2: That was how they worded it. Right. Sorry for me. You're making fun of me, man.
1: Grumpy. He's grumpy today. Do you see that? He's grumpy. He is. Need more coffee. Right. They don't even have autopsy reports back. Skip licking his butt right now. He's doing something. I can't see him. I hope you. I hope you're holding on to that thought, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why
2: don't we? uh, button up some of these responses here buddy <laughs> <laughs> half a page in yeah. ready <laughs> yeah sorry okay
1: now i've lost my train of thought i didn't think about anything i just start talking you yeah know? yeah you get going rambling don't get even going. remember what i'm talking about half the time uh,
2: i don't doubt that right
1: it's a condition mm-hmm. and so, i've already got enough people mad at me you know yeah just like people that think i'm wrong and bias and mean
2: right but you can't let that get to you nah keep my chin
1: up you know
2: and i think the listeners can agree with me when we say that's uh <laughs> dang it <laughs> dang it i hate it. i hate it when i can't <laughs> when i can't, com- can't complete yeah when you, i when i completely dropped the ball in a in a you, conversational podcast you, you, and it's you, you teed it up you couldn't Jeez, drive it all. that is a, yeah. that is one of the most embarrassing things you can do right yeah all right it could be worse it could be you could toot that would be embarrassing. That would be embarrassing. Right. Yeah. I don't know why you went there. I don't either.
1: <laughs> Can't even look at them.
2: No, yeah, look at them now. After that. <laughs> <laughs> God, my face. What are they paying for this? <laughs> Five dollars for a whole month
0: of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. Today's episode, you're gonna do your, you know how to do this. I don't have to tell you. Do I still have to tell you five Five seconds seconds of silence? silence? All right, I don't need to tell you that, right? You make me feel like a child sometimes, (laughs) like a small boy. We're best friends, (laughs) Mike. We're best friends. We are. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It was awkward stare
2: after we. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. All right, that's gonna do it for this week's Friday follow up. Thank you, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. Are
1: you happy with that? The
2: way you end the show? No, I said it one time, like a year ago, and then it just kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when you say you're signing off. What are you signing off of?
1: That's just my. That's my tagline. That's my closing line.
2: Well, I've got a closing tagline. That's a closing line. but so, I'm, I'm not happy with it.
1: Do you want to change it? Now's your chance.
2: What should I change it to?
1: I don't know. Uh,
2: <laughs> hey, that okay? Uh,
1: thanks, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. Sounds disingenuous. Not
2: yeah, mm-hmm. right. Cookie cutter.
1: Right. Um, maybe something like this Maybe like you Flare it up a little bit Like alright Thanks everybody For writing in We really appreciate it We'll see you next week Something like that That's Radio Guy Alright thanks everybody For writing in
2: We really appreciate it We'll see you next week Alright <laughs> that's Radio Guy Are we playing repeater? No I'm just kidding <laughs>